Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Claudia Rankin, Eula Biss, Leslie Jameson, and Maggie Nelson. You will now hear Fiona McRae, publisher of Gray Wolf Press, provide introductions. Welcome. Thank you very much indeed for coming. I want to apologize to anybody if I've been distracted over the last six months because I've been thinking about this and nothing else. And judging from the crowds, I think you're with me on that. It's very exciting to be at Grey Wolf Press at this time when there's so much good energy going on around the press and there's many people to thank and I thanked some people earlier and right now I'd like to thank all the staff at Grey Wolf for their incredibly committed and passionate and hard work. <laughs> they know who they are and wanted to just mention that um, Ethan Nesowski and Jeff Schotts, Ethan edited Maggie Nelson and Jeff Schotts edited the other three. So. I'm not quite sure why I get to stand up, other than I think it was my idea, this panel. <laughs> the whole thing was my, all these, all these books was my idea. My idea about nonfiction, actually, is if it's the truth that there's some way, and I'm sure there's a physical, physiological explanation on this, that the truth cannot be told head on. You can't just say, get your injections or be nice to people. You have to tell the truth slant to quote Emily Dickinson, and I feel as if uh, at Grey Wolf we've been building a list, perhaps going back to John DeGarda and boosted by our non-fiction prize where we've been really trying to attract non-fiction writers who tell the truth slant. And the whole thing has taken off in the, in the last 13 months with these incredible four writers and their books, which have changed not only the conversation about the topics that they're writing about, but I think they've changed the conversation about what nonfiction can do. So that's some of the things that we're going to talk about today. So in proverbial alphabetical order, um, we have Eula Biss, whose book on immunity and inoculation has... Uh, <laughs> I tell you what... Put your hand up if you need an introduction to any of these people. <laughs> then Leslie Jameson, the empathy exams. <laughs> Maggie Nelson's just published The Argonauts, which is already showing the signs of an early build that the other three did. It's nearly sold out. We had hundreds and hundreds of copies, and we were nearly sold out. So if you want one, you have to be there very early tomorrow morning, I think. And then, of course, last, but in absolutely no way least, Claudia Rankin, Citizen. <laughs> Thanks for doing my job for me. So I thought we would start with the title of the panel, which is The New Nonfiction, and over the last six months, what I've been thinking about is all the ways these books are similar to each other and all the ways and interesting ways in which, despite the similarities, they're still different from each other. 
One thing that they, they all do is they quarry their subject and they come at it from this point of view and go away and come back at it another point of view. But one thing that they, in their different ways, all seem to be, and you all seem to be circling around, ideas of the body. With Eulabists, we have the idea that the self doesn't end with your own physical body, that your own health is dependent on another and you have the health of the one against the health of the herd. Very interesting way that she writes about that. Leslie Jameson is trying to enter the body of someone else, trying to imagine the pain of other people and um, the difficulty of that. Maggie Nelson, the gendered body and the erotics of connecting with another as well as the geometry of it and the actual you know, the physical movements. She writes about that in a way that I've not read about. And then in Citizen, the, the black body against the white background or the black body and the white imagination or the stereotype body which gives someone else an idea about the self. So I don't think that's a question, but I'm hoping <laughs> that maybe you can just dive in and go in alphabetical order to start or just weigh in whoever feels moved to discuss is there something new about the way the four of you are addressing the body in your nonfiction? I was thinking as well about the ways in which these four books are overlap. And the thing that I felt rereading was that each book seemed to want to negotiate what it feels like to be overwhelmed in a certain way, whether it's overwhelmed from the position of redefining family and having to forge what that definition could look like and feel like in the world, or if it's about indwelling in terms of the empathy, you know, what that feels like, how do you step inside a, a moment and interrogate it. For me, in Neil's case, that sense of public trust around the body, like how much can one trust? And being overwhelmed by the, the acquisition of information and the distrust-trust dynamic around that. And I think in my case, also that sense of trust-distrust in terms of how does one read what is happening to the actual body. Claudia just sent my mind spinning in a different direction, but when you asked the question, I was thinking about, I think what I enjoy in all, the work of all these authors is the body being claimed as an intellectual space or a space where you get to, you jump from that space into an intellectual problem, and and the body is a problem in different ways in these different works, but... I feel like in all these works, there's a resistance to this old dichotomy, right, between the, the body and the mind or the, you know, female and male. And we've got all of these sets of polarities. And, and I write about that a little bit around the science, around vaccination. But, yeah, I guess that's what's exciting is, is seeing the body entered as a place to think. And maybe I'll throw out something more so we can spin in another direction, but... The question also made me think of this line from the Argonauts where Maggie's riffing on the phrase same-sex marriage. And she says something along the lines of 
This phrase, same sex, when it's repeated over and over again, really puts the emphasis on sameness. And there's this insinuation that that's what the attraction is about, right, the the sameness. And she said something like, the sameness isn't what feels meaningful to me here. And and I guess that's the other thing. I I understand similarities between all our work, but I guess what's thrilling to me is the places where I, I feel like, like, for instance, I see Maggie using a form that... Is, looks like a form that I've used, but in a totally different way, and, and there's a real thrill to that. Or I see Claudia in a moment posing a question that I feel like I would have liked to pose, but never found a way to do it. And, you know, in, in Citizen, one of the questions that really grabbed me the most was this question about rage. And if rage isn't the appropriate reaction to injustice, then what is? And, and that question really got me and and felt both like something that I had asked and something that I'd failed to ask. And seeing something like that voiced in a space that was so different from my own writerly space was, was really exciting and, and also like a challenge. This is so fun. I just, uh, I, the fun is about to unfold, but uh, I think that, uh, I guess when you were talking, Fiona, I thought not so much about, like, even though I think all of our books, yes, like there's a topical commitment to writing about the body in a certain way. But I guess what I just want to throw into the conversation is that for me, like, I don't really understand the idea of like writing on bodies unless the writing itself in like an aesthetic sense, it doesn't have to be about the body. It enacts something in the body of the person reading or the person writing. And I feel like Eileen who's sitting right here, I'm like thinking of as like one of my, you know, super great teachers on this account because, I mean, to me, I guess... I don't think so much like I'm writing about bodies as much as like, you know, is this moving fast? Does this feel hot? Does this feel cold? Does this feel, you know, what's the, what's the aesthetics of the writing? And I think like you're saying, Eula, like the, the differences in our writing to me, it's in part the bodies that are being written about, but it's also about the affective range or universe, which is being created via the aesthetics of the writing, you know, around so when you read, you're going to have, like, in the first part of Citizen, like, you know, there are different sensations that might have to do with, you know, claustrophobia or sickness or kind of need to regurgitate that which the world has proffered to you or this kind of dialectic about what you're internalizing. And I think that, you know, whereas that, say, in Eula's work, there might be summoned feelings of, of duty or of, of felt relation that, that is often denied or disavowed between people or something. So I think, I guess, I just want to throw in, like, that it's not just the topic. It's also what you do with it aesthetically to make it an embodied experience for the person reading it. Yeah, I mean, I guess... My mind is is spinning, too, in a lot of ways. I mean, I think that that makes a lot of sense to me, what Maggie was talking about, this idea of drawing some kind of distinction or two different ways of looking at the subject, like writing about bodies as one thing, but sort of writing that feels processed somehow through the body or also is, is sort of a way of thinking about the experience that that writing creates in its readers. And certainly, I mean, sometimes I think... It's strange to me when people pull out the body as one of my subjects because it has always felt so much stranger to me, the idea that you wouldn't write about the body or that the body somehow wouldn't be present in the work. Like, I think that's, that's a harder harder thing for me to imagine just because, as you were saying, Eula, that distinction between mind and body has never felt 
like that's just never resonated with my sense of what it means to be or be in the world. Um, so I think it, it never has felt like a conscious choice. It's just felt like the only way to access truth was somehow to, to treat that boundary as porous. Um, one thing that that idea of overwhelm, I think is so beautiful thinking about how it plays out in different ways. And to me, it summons sort of its opposite, which is the idea of, of edges, both kind of edges between bodies, which I think on immunity does so much to interrogate this, this notion of kind of our default setting being that we all live in separate bodies and thinking about actually what if the default setting was thinking about the interconnectedness between those bodies. And I think the sort of way, Maggie, that your work also kind of interrogates the categories that we put bodies into and um, what it might mean to rethink some of those. I feel like that's also a, a kind of uh, drawing of an edge. And that idea of sort of overwhelm seems like overwhelm is one way that we talk about the violation of certain edges, like either the violation of certain categorical edges, and then that creates a kind of intellectual or emotional overwhelm. Um, I think empathy is also very much, at least to me, about respecting edges and limits, but also thinking about the ways in which our edges get overcome by other people or the experiences of other people, or, or we somehow seek that. Um, so that tension between edges and overwhelm, I feel, is somehow an emotional through line between our work, although I also agree it's sort of interesting to think about how it plays out in such different ways. So, Maggie, you're, uh, do you want to maybe talk about the notion of being overwhelmed, how that applies to your work or, or not? Maggie's got a thinking face, so I'll talk. <laughs> yeah, a huge part of On Immunity was about trying to write about and make some sense out of being overwhelmed by information and kind of struggling towards knowledge while being overwhelmed by information and the, the kind of ways that information can actually stand in the way of the acquisition of knowledge. And, and so I was both trying to, like, evoke that and show it and show what it feels like, but also drive through it. And I wanted to try to break through the what I felt like was kind of hazy thinking that came from being overwhelmed with information to a place of clarity and in a place where the information was being made into knowledge and was becoming, I guess, becoming something that could be used or acted on rather than just noise. And especially around something like vaccination, which there's, there's tons of information, but also tons of outlets for information and, and many different kinds. And there's, there's the word of mouth and there's internet and there's textbooks and there's immunology classes. There's just so many routes to information. And I think it, it can very easily just become a, a loud buzz. The project for me was taking that buzz and trying to, to find a way through it where maybe, yes, by the end I'm still overwhelmed, but I feel like I know something. Yeah, you know, I guess I, maybe I'll pass only in that, well, I won't really pass because now I'm talking, but like overwhelm, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a term that resonates quickly with me in terms of like a genesis of writing. I guess maybe I'm like too controlling or something and I'm like, I'm, I got this boat, but I think it's more like, a, I think it's more, I feel kind of gnashier about a subject than overwhelmed by, like kind of continually agitated by it. And, you know, often when I finish a book, I don't feel as agitated by whatever it was that I set out that was, you know, bothering me so much. So like in this book, The Argonauts, it's very much kind of about 
homonormativity and heteronormativity and these kind of uh, dichotomies about transgression and normativity. And, you know, it was really driving me crazy at the start of the project. And then, and then I just, I don't think of it as like resolved. I just think of it as like burned out, you know, like I just, I just burned it out. So I don't think of it so much as like overwhelm. It's more just to me, like I just gnash around until I'm done. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my obvious limited ability to, to enter into the, the sort of process of the work. And, but in reading The Argonauts, I had this feeling that there were mechanisms set up in the, in the text to pull one back from the edge so that the role of the partner as the kind of normalizing the overwhelming sensation, the affect of feeling hounded in some way or, you know, by pain or by being pursued, or, and that there were mechanisms in the text to, to bring you back or to bring the speaker back to a place where one could negotiate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I felt in Euler's book that there, there was also that sense of the doctor or the partner always being utilized in the text as a, a modulating, um, rationalizing mechanism within the text when the moment felt overwhelming, when the information and the absorption of the information and the application of fear up against the information allowed you to feel like I might drown in this. So that it, it's in that way that I'm thinking. I mean, it's, it's, it's different in the empathy part because you're moving from discrete sections to discrete sections. But that's when I bring up overwhelming, it's, it's that, that was the sensation as a reader I was getting. So it might be different in terms of the process of working, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Claudia, I mean, when you were writing your book, what uh, brought you back from being overwhelmed? What was your journey through what's potentially a very overwhelming subject? Well, now I'll agree with Maggie. I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> well, the mecha- I, I think formally the form of citizen where one is working within discrete segments. And because it is, in a sense, a community document where one was taking in stories from other people, the inability for me to enter into the psychic life of the person who told me the story often stopped me at the story. So that if I was distressed or in a moment of affect around the details of the story, I wasn't going to pretend to supply the psychic life of the people inside the dynamic. And so that would stop the investigation there. Arguably a calmness in your language all the way through that's uh, very noticeable when you read as well. In your readings, there's a a calmness that's uh, kind of breathtaking, really, when it's when you think about the material. So I think that's very striking. It's, it's interesting thinking about these books because you sometimes get there's three of the books are, have got something in common and there's one that's different and it, it changes which one that is. And so the body was one thing that fit all four. And then to go back to Leslie's point, I did find myself thinking, well, is everyone always writing about the body? Is this the lowest? And then I thought, no, that you, you could be talking about memory or you know pollution or... You know, that there was something unique in that. I thought it was, it was interesting to throw out there. And then and another thing that is interesting about all four of your books is that there is this... Well, it's what's so fascinating for, for I think, all of us who've read these books and uh, for those of you who 
are going to read them. It's the journey that you go on. Each of you take us through. We're changed by the end of these books. And to watch you thinking, which you're doing with your heads, obviously, is, I mean, it's wonderful just listening to you talk, but watching you write and the the hills and valleys that you go through and you go from personal to philosophical to specific to general in, in fascinating ways. So all four of you p- picking on big topics, and I, I'm getting a sense that, uh, Maggie, you're a little bit, because it's so recent, haven't seen it coming, but people are asking you to come and speak on the topic of your books, which is very divorced from the aesthetics of your books. So I would like to hear more about the aesthetic choices that you all made and, and how you fit the aesthetic to the, to the big subject and the decisions you've made. You've all worked in different genres and nonfiction. And Claudia, you have fiction and poetry and nonfiction in, and visuals in one book. So maybe you could start with the forms and you know, some, how you addressed form or how it came to you. Okay. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm really, I, for a long time, I've been interested in Chris Saber's notion of um, intertextuality and the ways in which different pathways of thought disallow the text from settling. So how do you disturb the sentence, disturb the page, disturb the reading experience? How many different pathways can you allow the text to contain? So on the level of writing, that's always happening in terms of word choice and the juxtapositioning of of one word up against another. But then in Lonely and in Citizen, there's also the use of images. And one of the things I love about images is that they, I cannot control not that I can control where the reading experience takes someone, but I have no idea what the associative modalities will be around someone's looking at an image. I don't know where they encountered that image first, if it's in the book or it's in somewhere else. I don't know what pathway even the creator, the visual artist, meant for that image. And so taking the image and putting it with the text and creating a dialogue that's not my mimic, you know, that that is nowhere really interested in reflecting anything, but continuing a discourse and a dialogue that then creates alternate pathways so that you can move out and come back, but that is overlapped just enough, at least in my own imagination, so that it doesn't seem random. Those are the kinds of things that I think about in the making of my work. I guess I kind of working off that idea of disruption, which feels resonant for me both on the level of process or genesis, kind of like how I move my way into a subject or into something that has driven me towards inquiry, like that idea of kind of disrupting either if it's something more journalistic and I'm encountering another person in the world, sort of that process of, of my notions about them being constantly disrupted by the self that they are presenting me with, or in writing that's something more like memoir, kind of re-encountering my own life and that process of sort of disrupting the stories that have become familiar to me about what happened, the version, the kind of grooves of memory that I've fallen into, and then 
figuring out what's underneath them is also a kind of process of disruption. But I think in terms of form, a lot of how, I mean, that, what Claudia, what you said earlier about form being the way that you sort of move through or respond to some sense of overwhelm, I think, has been very true for me. Like the way that, I guess, certain things I've written about, there's almost a kind of formal play that can help me get closer to what I feel blocked or mystified by. And, and often I like that idea of being stopped by something because I think it works in a few different ways. Like being stopped by something doesn't actually mean withdrawal. It can mean like a pause and a moving deeper into that. That's a way of being stopped by something too. But I think when I'm approaching something that I feel has like lodged under my skin in some way, and I'm drawn to saying more about it, but I don't know what that something more will necessarily look like. I think sometimes form is the way in or one of my pieces about getting hit. I am playing around with the work of this early 20th century Russian theorist and who's, who divides folktales into sections. And I'm picking up his folktale pieces as a way of trying to tell my own story. But Ultimately, what happens there is not the application of the pieces, but the transcription of the ways that they break down. So in a way, it's like form is the way in or some sort of formal structure is the way in, but the piece actually comes alive in sort of noticing, okay, here's where form is somehow refused, or I've picked this form up, but it's, it's failing me in this way, and the kind of confession of that failure is where the particularity of the story kind of comes into focus for me, so... I think for me, I feel like in almost all my work, I, f I find form, and I have to write my way into it. And I know writers who write form first, and like my friend David Trinidad will, you know, he'll decide I'm going to write a sonnet, but he doesn't know what's going to be in it, but he knows he's writing a sonnet. And I've, I've never written that way. I, I don't know what shape it's going to take. And I usually know maybe what the question or the problem is, but I don't know what shape that question or problem will bring me to. In this work, once I realized the dimensions of the problem and the question and that the problem and question were, were huge, I assumed, oh, this is not an essay. This, this is actually a book. I'm, I'm in something big. And I kind of just assumed that since it was big and I was writing an essay, it would just be one long continuous essay. And it's not. It's, it's an essay in 30 parts, 30 small parts. And I remember a conversation kind of late in the writing process where I had been waiting and waiting for these 30 parts to just merge and become one. And it was becoming clearer and clearer that that was not going to happen. And they weren't mushing together. And for a while, I'd been talking with my editor, Jeff Schatz, about this. And Jeff had been saying, well, maybe some of them will stick together and there will be chapters. And I thought kind of hopefully about that possibility, too. And <laughs> that wasn't happening either. They weren't clustering or sticking. And Jeff was really generous around giving me long phone conversations. And part of what was happening in those conversations is I was just trying to articulate, you know, what is happening, figure out why is what's going on in this book going on. And at some point, we, we'd started a conversation talking about the structure of the book and, and talking about all the possibilities. You know, will these 30 sections become one? Should we title them? Should we number them? What's, what's going to happen here? 
And if it remains in 30 short sections, why? You know, that was part of the question we were talking about. In the same conversation, we just meandered away from that. And at some point, I said something about the book that is now, I think, kind of abundantly obvious, but in the, at the time felt like a real new piece of information that I discovered where I, I said, well, this book is about how bodies are both dependent and, and independent and how our bodies, meaning us as members of a community, are, are both independent organisms and totally dependent on each other. And when I said that, it was, I felt like a kind of epiphanous moment about the form where I realized, oh, these 30 short pieces can't merge because they're actually bodies and they are dependent on each other the way that the bodies in a community are, but they also have their own edges. They have their own kind of skin, and I have to respect that skin. And and the, and the sections are different. There, you know, there's some that are very personal. There's some that are historical. There's some that are very information laden, and there's some that are much more committed to exploring an emotional experience. But once I understood the relationship between form and content, then I felt like I knew how to nurture the form and. I also knew what the form was doing for the content and could move on with that knowledge. In a, you know, and in this conversation with Jeff, we, we came to the end of this conversation and, and had realized, oh, yeah, we can't title these sections. We can't number them. We can't mush them together. This, this way that this form that's emerging is the way the book has to be. Sure, yeah, I love everything you just said, Eula, because I just, I don't know, it really, I mean, I feel like there are some writers, like you say, who just, it's like form first or whatever, but I feel like that I'm, what you're describing, which I never know if it's kind of, what's the phrase, like Monday morning quarterbacking, when you look back and you're like, oh, the form and the content, of course, they're married in this perfect way, you know, but I do think that when you're working on it, like, I, if you do if you do work like I work like you work, where I have, I have no clue what the form of the book is going to take, it, it can be very agitating and murky time before you realize that. But then there, I think there, I always have had usually a moment, like, like there was a moment when I was writing my book, Bluettes, where I just was, like, standing in a bookstore looking at a book in numbered sections, and I was like, oh, oh duh, like, that's it. That's the way. And I just went home and put everything I'd written into that form. And then, and, and I think, but, but, but of course it, like, makes a lot of sense, because if the book is about the way that kind of heavy emotion or overwhelmed, you know, experience interacts with the kind of disciplinary tone of philosophy or something, then it would be, and, and, and work on juxtaposition, but also work on, on pause or something. It made a lot of sense that that was going to be the form. But like, I think with this book, the Argonauts, it's like, you're describing, I, I don't think I've ever written anything called an essay. So whenever people are like, will you be on a panel about the lyric essay? I'm like, sure. I don't have a clue what that is, but I, I'm happy to be there if it'll be fun. But like, I think, but I, but I did have a minute with this book where I, where I did actually, well, I read your book in manuscript, Eula, so maybe you were like seeping into me, but I like the kind of content, if I even, I don't even know what the content is when I'm writing, but if the content were something I was calling sodomitical maternity, which is a phrase from a feminist critic named Susan Freeman. And then kind of on the other hand, these questions about queerness, like if the problem was, can they be in the same book? Because I'd written kind of a bunch on one and a bunch on the other. At a certain point, it became clear to me that like, that the political or aesthetic action of making them part of this same long essay was going to answer the question of, can they be in the same book? Yes, they can. They'll be smushed one long essay together, you know, without any kind of formal breaks, like, like numbers or something like that. So I do think, and then later you think, they're smushed. That's perfect, you know. But I, but it takes a long time to figure that out for me, and it's a lot of working in the dark. I could, 
I could listen all day to how your books arrived at their <laughs> final, and it's, it's in, in a way it was kind of interesting not being the editor because you just get served up this thing that looks like this beautifully crafted pie, and then you realise there were moments in the kitchen when it wasn't always going to be like that. Claudia, I noticed you writing something down. I've got a question, but if you... I, w- I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea about the lyric essay and a little bit thinking about the new nonfiction and the self. Maggie, I think you and Eula put the most of yourselves in. And Leslie, you, have a, you use quite a lot of yourself and you use some of yourself, but Claudia and Leslie also give other examples, but all four of you are generous in the way that you share, but none of you are writing what I would call personal essays, and Claudia, you call yours a lyric, but just your thoughts about the self and how much you draw on the self and what it, what it is you're doing when you're sharing and whether you feel like there is some new territory that you've all, that you in, in your different ways have entered in terms of what and how you are sharing autobiographical material. The overshare par excellence. I guess, I don't know. I was thinking today, I was talking to someone this morning, and I, I don't know, maybe we can like take a vote later or something, but I'd like to come up with like a new spectrum that was not the spectrum. You didn't lay this out, Fiona, but just between the way we talk about autobiography with the spectrum of like revelation to concealment, you know, because I just, when I'm writing, I just don't, I don't, just it's totally not on my mind. Whatever, you know, that's like within something that, you know, would be called a kind of, kind of like a logic of confession. And if you're not really writing on that spectrum, then the questions are really just like, what is this need? You know, what is this need of myself to, to talk about these things in the culture I want to talk about, which is why with this book, The Argonauts, I was calling it. I'm kind of jokingly in, in an homage to this recent book by Beatrice, now Paul Preciado, called Testo Junkie. But she, he calls that book auto theory, which I thought was a great phrase because it's just kind of like, but in the little brief introduction to Testo Junkie, Preciado talks about using yourself and it's back to the body, like as a guinea pig, a kind of auto subject upon which these theories can be tried. And I think to me, it's like, that's, that's why I would use that name for this particular book is like offering up your body as a guinea pig for trying out these things and, and for what it can tell you about the, about the culture, not necessarily uh, a kind of refracting back to like, what have I exposed about the self? Because I, I guess I feel kind of post-shame in that regard. <laughs> I completely agree with what you just said. I mean, I think in a sense when one sits down, at least when I sit down to write, it is by any means possible, you know, or by any means necessary to get at something that has absolutely everything and nothing to do with me, in a sense. And so the mode is actually a mode of interrogation. And in that position, I will take from anything. If it's sex in the city, I'll take it. If it's going to help me. If it's Derrida, I'll take it. If it's, gonna, if it's the Bible, if it's Maggie, you know. I, <laughs> with the Bible. And if it's my own life, all right, you know, whatever. I never think of it in any form as memoir. I, you know, I don't, I don't know this person beyond the fact that the person of me was out there um, collecting stuff and thinking about it and interrogating it towards a positioning on a certain subject. Yeah, I love that way of putting it, that by any means necessary. I, I feel like that's very much the kind of urgency that I feel when I'm writing. And 
Yeah, I'm drawing on whatever source or kind of source material is going to best help me access the idea that I'm trying to express. And sometimes that involves pulling information out of some source of information. Sometimes it involves drawing on memory. Sometimes it involves drawing on observation. And I do, I, I think that I maybe have been asked the question, why do you put the personal next to the historical so many times that I've gotten a little prickly about that? And that I feel like there's a part of me that feels like, I just don't think that way. Haven't I lived history, and don't I live in history, and doesn't history live in me? And I just don't see the divide there. And all this historical material feels personal to me. And the material that that I think reads as personal to me feels very political and seems to be speaking towards historical trends in, in ways that I think are significant. Yeah, and I guess I too impose shame in that I feel like if this is the best way to say it and it involves, you know, talking about my uterus turning inside out, then that's what has to be done. And it, to me, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't feel like a revelate, like I'm revealing something. For me, the project is not, yeah, reveal or conceal. The project is get at this thing I'm trying to say. Though maybe, you know, right in the moment right before publication, then I get a little <laughs> squeamish and, you know, will say, oh, I actually don't want mean-spirited people to know stuff about my kid. But, oh, well, you know, that's... I guess I've come to think, like, everyone has their cross to bear. And if, you're, you know, if your parents are two economists, there's probably going to be fallout from that. My son happens to have two nonfiction writers as his parents, and there's, you know, discomfort that comes with that, I think. Yeah, it's so, I mean, it's incredible to be up here and listen to these beautiful articulations that ring really true for me. I mean, one thing I've been thinking about is how many of these issues are embedded in the actual language that people use to talk about the writing that gets called personal. And the word revelation is a really interesting one to me, and the word vulnerability is a really interesting one to me. I think revelation doesn't feel quite right to me as well, because it implies that this sort of act of writing is the parting of the veil or an opening of the curtain, and then the self is behind that curtain. But that, to me, is never what putting the eye on the page in any form feels like. It is often motivated in the ways that you guys have been speaking to so um, wonderfully. Like, it feels often motivated by purpose and inquiry. And so it's sort of like, if my own life is useful in the service of that inquiry, great. And I'll bring it onto the page because it's available to me. Although that availability always feels so important to say is so vexed and fraught. Because the ways in which I am available to myself are mysterious and and have obstacles too, or the parts of my life that I'm most interested in are the parts that are somehow still mysterious to me, or there's something left for me to learn. But I think the idea of revelation also threatens to forget just crafts and the way that it's not a revealed thing because the eye is always like a, a crafted thing there and a made thing. Like we're only ever going to reveal ourselves or make ourselves on the page partially. It would be like the Borges and the map that is as big as the whole world that it's mapping. A life is always going to be so much more than whatever shows up. So the self that's there is made of these pieces that you choose. And for me, I choose those pieces because they help me get somehow closer to this thing that I'm perplexed or troubled uh, by or wondering about. Um, 
And I guess, yeah, the last thing I would just do is kind of echo that sense of that it feels less like the choice to also include the self in any given transcription and more like the idea that somehow the self could be separated from any of these things is very foreign to me. And I think about that too, how it plays out, not just in terms of sort of cultural history or criticism or those modes of writing, but the projects that I've done that, that involve reporting, I think sometimes I... Well, I certainly field questions about sort of why do you show up so much in your reported pieces? And it's sort of like I show up because I showed up to that reporting. Like I show up because I was there. Like so it's which is not to say I love lots of journalism that isn't doesn't have a lot of eye in it, but it's it's always to me like everything that was happening in that encounter was being wired through my circuitry and so that's the story I'm interested in writing. So it feels like less like the choice to put there and more like how so, sort of partial it would feel to kind of extract, extract the self from... You know, I had a thought. I, I just, uh, this is a, a, a quick thought, but I wonder if, if the self is being seen as a gendered self. You know, I wonder if we were all Baldwin, for example. If, if only, Claudia. If only. <laughs> If then we would be so concerned with the the eye showing up in the body. And because Baldwin doesn't really fit into sort of heteronormativity and issues of transcendent text, et cetera, et cetera, maybe Baldwin is not the best example. So, But that's something also, I think, that the, the mode of inquiry towards questioning the presence of the self in the text might have to do with the gendered self in that text. It's, it just always surprises me that this idea is still around, that a, a text is more like truer or more objective or something if the self isn't present or isn't visible to the reader. And you know, in grad school, I took an ethnography course that was just one of the offerings for people who are studying nonfiction and you know, in, in ethnography and in anthropology, this is kind of an old idea now that the observer changes the observation, and you're supposed to now, as you know, as an ethnographer or an anthropologist, you're supposed to triangulate so that your audience understands what you're looking through when you're looking at your subject, and so you're supposed to reveal oh, yeah, I'm a 38-year-old white woman who grew up in the Northeast, so you might want to take what I'm saying about this tribe of hunter-gatherers, you know, with a grain of salt. And I actually think that when people fail to do that, there's a kind of lie that is built into the text, and it's the lie of the invisible or transparent narrator, right? The, the narrator who has not affected what she's looked at by looking at it and by being who she is. But still, there, there seems to be this idea just in the air that, oh, you know, that's real serious work or that, that's real reporting if the, you know, if the reporter isn't there on the page and clearly being a player in the drama of the gathering of information. I'm hoping the tide is turning on some of that, you know, and I think it's a mixture of both sort of honest and generous, the, 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 sharing, the sharing of the self. And, you know, the, the wrong kind of sharing of the self is arguably selfish, but I think the way you four do it, it's, it's in the service of something larger. And in, in terms of being unselfish, I thought maybe I should open up question time to, to some of you and... Um, 
I might end it just a little bit early because I imagine we can't retire to booth 800 because the book fair is closed, but some of you might want to come down and get book signs or might leave a little bit of time for that. But if you want to have questions, and we're, we're being taped, so we have to, I'll have to repeat the questions. Okay, only marks, get set, go. <laughs> yes, you there. She's asking about, for Claudia to amplify and anybody else to chime in about Claudia's comments about the gendered body and whether that meant that there was a presence of another, if it was a woman or a black body or something, minority, did you say? Something like that. So, Well, I, I think I'm interested in thinking about it because of, because of the categories that are created around the work as queer work or African-American work or you know, so that a text that is transcendent, like what is that transcendence really equal? You know, it's equal to white, it's equal to male, it's equal to a, an appearance of uninvested existence in the world that is not polluted by politics or privilege or the lack of privilege. You know, that, that sense that... so. It's only interesting to me on on those terms. In terms of reading the text, I'm very interested, actually, in what terms are being set up for the narrator, what the investment is in terms of the journey of the text, which might be actually separate from that of the writer. On that that subject. I don't know. I guess, you know, when I heard your question, I just thought, when Claudia was talking about earlier about when you brought up the gender body question, I mean, and kind of to link it onto the shame or post-shame thing. I mean, I think, you know, you learn a lot when you go around the world presenting work about, like, when people say something's personal, then it's not everything they think is personal. Like, if you say, I grew up in Minneapolis, no one's like, oh, my God, she said she grew up in Minneapolis, right? But, you know, it's about, like, like kind of like Eula was saying, it's like, you know, you notice a lot, like, oh, my God, you talked about wanting to get fucked, or, oh, my God, you talked about your uterus turning inside out. Like, you know, it's usually, like, it's those things that you get the, like, you're so brave, you know, kind of a comment, and you're like, we were just talking about that earlier, like, you, you learn a lot from the you're so brave thing because it, it's predicate tells you a lot about who's talking to you, what they think is the brave thing that shouldn't be said that you just said. But you don't know because if you are happily ensconced in a subculture where you don't, where those things are norms, then you just got to like go around to find those things out. But those are, you know, they're, they're a bummer because they're kind of lowest common denominator things. Like what you're saying, you wish we were beyond that. But, you know, we're not. So, you know, you still got to go around and, and, and face that, you know. I think I have to say, even though obviously most of you heard, but for the, for the sake of the tape, he's saying, is it healthy, actually, that the I and different kinds of I are entering the text so that you don't have the privileged white male I, such as Truman Capote in Cold Blood, who was able not to have an I, that's something that he was proud of, but actually was a, a privilege. And I think you were addressing Leslie. Everybody. Yeah. You brought it up, so... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, love, I love that idea, and I think it gets back to what you, what you were saying, uh, sort of taking from the tradition of ethnography, sort of a, a way to give your reader more information about what they're about to read, to sort of own your perspective. And I think what you were saying about creating a, a different kind of social contract by having I present in the text in a different way feels very connected to that for me. I mean, I guess one way that I can respond to that is to say that 
I'm always surprised by the idea of, or the narrowness of the idea that writing that has a lot of I in it is inherently somehow solipsistic or narcissistic, or that it, that including the I in a text somehow narrows the field of the text to just some, like applying to you or speaking to that I, because it's 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 always been my experience. I mean, for many years as a reader before I ever wrote, but also hearing from readers who, who have read something I've written, it's, it, it's, almost, it's often that the inclusion of the eye can like open the text in a certain way to readers as opposed to like bringing everything back to the gravitational field of this eye who is speaking. It, it actually sort of, it, it's that sense of like going deep enough in is actually what, I mean, it goes back to Emerson and before, but this idea of sort of going deep enough in, you reach this place that extends outward so much. So there's something really can be some, something so connective about the eye being like confessed or opened up or explored in that way, which, which to me resonates with kind of the spirit of the possibility you were thinking about in your question. I'm just going to build off of what you just said. And I I think Capote is a really interesting example. And in True Blood, I get confused now. My vampires are crossing with my nonfiction. (laughs) In Cold Blood. In Cold Blood is an interesting example because there might not be a first person. But I feel like just because you don't use the first person on the page doesn't mean you're not there as an author. Capote's all over that book. You you really feel him. And you're only allowed to look at something because Capote's looking at it. And you have to be interested in what Capote's interested in. And you have to feel what he's telling you to feel. And he's really there. And he's palpable. And I think a, a sophisticated reader knows that and feels that. And the absence or presence of the first person, in, in some ways, I feel is kind of moot. Like, it's, the, yeah, the author is always there. And the author is always mediating your experience. A question from the higher up. He's saying he heard Maggie recant some of the stuff that she was saying had previously written in Bluettes. No. <laughs> He's asking about auto-theory and vulnerability and the tension between the two. And I can answer well without knowing what I... I don't even want to know because this is, like the, this is like the recorded universe we live in about what was recanted. But I certainly would never recant. I mean, this book is way more theoretically based... Than Bluettes, like for sure. I mean, Bluettes had a, it was the register in which I was, you know, skulking around was really philosophy. But this book is really more specifically with feminist and queer theory. So it's actually, that's why I would not call it Bluettes, like auto theory. That was like, that was kind of like self help philosophy and, you know, like other things. But like this, but I don't, you know, I think that I'm always, I mean, I feel like this book, my new book is kind of like a, it's actually the first kind of, love letter to like the theory of my youth you know like the early 90s theory like the high theory moment and like psychoanalytic theory which is kind of on the going on the down low or something so um yeah i mean so but i don't so i don't know so i don't think i've recanted any of that i think in every project there's a reason why given the subject matter of this book say psychoanalytic theory would be the register like winnicott in particular um and other people that would be the main um kind of uh, you know correspondence that I was using, whereas like Wittgenstein or something would be, you know, more typical than Bluettes or something, or like Artaud and the Art of Cruelty or, or what, what have you. But I think that, you know, for me, the interest of any of this project is, in, you know, once you know who the field of interlocutors are that you're talking to, then you have to figure out how to make the form of the book be able to make like a, a, a party for them to all be there, you know, and that's like a formal question, like how do you invite all these people to the party and then and talk? I think Claudia's work does this. I see that happening in your work 
very much as well. So I, I've never given up that project, and I don't think I ever will. Any, anything else? Top right. Yeah. Speak. <laughs> So what distinction do the esteemed panelists make between the mind and the body? And how do you get out of the mind into the body? Or how do you get out of the body into the mind? One or the, one or the other or both. I think Eula's going to tell you the false dichotomy. <laughs> She's exploding our dichotomies today. Yeah, I, I feel like maybe I can say again what I already said. But, you know, you don't get to have a mind without a body. This was very apparent to me when I was like bleeding to death on the delivery table. The body goes, the mind goes. That's, that's so, to me, I, I don't feel like it's fair to pull those things apart. You need one for the other. What's that? They're friends. The, the, yeah, they're, and they're not even just friends. I mean, they're like the same thing. You know, like maybe this comes up, you know, it, it, I was writing a lot of, uh, or reading a lot about all the organisms that live within us, right? And all the bacteria and viruses and fungi <laughs> and all the other stuff that lives in it. And this question of like, immunologists talk about like, what is the self? What is us? And, and the reality is that we are way more them than we are us. Just in sheer number of cells, right? You've got more cells of others inside you than you have cells of you. And it doesn't even make sense at a certain point to separate out. Immunology has a long history of, of separating self and other. Actually, they call it non-self. It's this funny little science terminology, self and non-self. But the more you learn about the subject, the more ridiculous it seems to try to separate self from non-self. It's we're both, and if you strip all the non-self out of you, you're not going to be self anymore either. So I, I think of the mind-body thing similarly. I, you know, I was, I'm, I'm sort of reminded of something from Argonauts where there's the conversation between the two theorists. And one of them shows the film, right, in, in, in Maggie's book. And one theorist um, dismisses the other because she's shown pictures of her body in a talk. And that sense of dirtying up the intellectual space with the body. And I wonder where that came from, you know? I mean, this is a rhetorical wonder. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think we've got time for one more quick question, and you did get your hand up first. Post shame. First, you have to just be shameless. That's the. That's right. That was okay. Uh, one more. <laughs> that was a very quick question. Okay, so whether that's. This fugitive form that everyone is so excited about clearly by being here and that the antecedents weren't all literary but film and so on and whether that were, you four were conscious of that. Any, One thing I can say about how something about, I'm not, I'm not an expert in the history of photography. I'm really interested in photography and I'm interested in the way that photography as a form has illuminated some of the same kinds of tensions that come up in nonfiction and, and especially sometimes personal nonfiction about recognizing something. I mean, it comes back to recognizing something not as revelation, but as construction and thinking about, I don't know the date, but in the late 19th century, the first time that 
a photograph was understood as something copyrightable was like this moment where it was seen not as just like taking reality and duplicating it because how could you put a copyright on reality but actually understanding the photograph as a made thing that was a sort of singular creation of a reality instead and I feel like so much of the I got really interested in thinking about civil war photography and the sort of scandal of arranged photographs or like sort of bodies that had been moved on the battlefield and the way that the scandal of that was the idea of the photographers, artists and craftsmen and shaper and manipulator being very present when there was a, a deep desire or hunger or fantasy to believe in the transparent photographer, the, the sort of the maker who wasn't present. They were just the kind of medium through which you got the the unchanged thing. And I feel like sort of thinking about what that hunger is, like what is the fantasy for the eye or the maker or the shaper who's somehow not there because it seems like so much of what writing in different ways is all doing is sort of exploring what can happen when you own that, that mediating self. I'll say something. I guess I, I guess I love this question coming from Eileen because I feel like I came to the essay through poetry and I always knew when I was in poetry that in some ways what I was doing was, was different. And I loved that I had all these poets around me being supportive and, you know, allowing me to be part of the community when, you know, I was writing like 3,000-word unlineated prose poems, so, you know, and it, it didn't look <laughs> a lot like poetry. So, but nobody was, like, I never had anyone say, this is not a poem to me, you know? It was, and, and I felt like that was very, that was really important to my development as a writer. And part of what draws me to the essay and to nonfiction is maybe that it's so... I feel like it's so loosely defined and that there's so much room in terms of what you can do and, and you, can, you can do what the work asks you to do. And I feel so unattached to, you know, being called an essayist or a nonfiction writer or, you know, any of the, the terms that go around. I feel like, yeah, my community started out being poets and it's still like, I just feel like artists in general. And so, yeah, I draw on film and I draw on, for a while, when I was in San Diego, before Eileen arrived, you know, I, I hadn't found any writers. So I was with experimental musicians and that's what was feeding my work then was these experimental composers at UCSD. And it, for me, there's lots of tributaries. There's lots of stuff feeding the work that has nothing to do with genre or even medium. It's, for me, I guess, really it feels like the important conversation is with other artists. I, I, I just wanted to add that, that um, the, the self is a constructed self. I think cultural studies, media studies, the, one of the you know, reasons that those disciplines are on the rise is that we have an aggressive understanding of our, you know, ourselves behind ourselves concealed, as Emily Dickinson said. That self back there really is made by that which comes in, meaning what we, the music we listen to, you know, Rihanna. Um, <laughs> but the music, the, book, the books we watch, the, the films that create and reflect 
our culture. You know, the, there's a what happens in film also has to do with you know who's the enemy now in the film? Arabs, right? So all the, po- the politics of the time get reflected in the culture. The culture helps position our fears. Our fears then are combated in our interrogations, and all of those things create who we are. We are not these like things that arrive and then go to the movies. <laughs> you know, um, I, you know, I was, as you were talking, Eileen, I was thinking about you as JFK, you know, like, but that's, I think that's partly it. It's like there, there is no self beyond the constructive self. So when you talk about the body and the mind, the mind is constantly involved in shaping how we think about the body that we carry around and who that body can stand next to, and who that body should run from. So we are or we aren't these things that walk into (laughs) AWP and get to hear great panels. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.